chapter 11. Last week, we had talked about Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. It was going to set up what would be Jesus' last week on earth. And, and, and the rest of the book of Mark, about a third of it, is going to cover this last week of Jesus' life. And so uh, everything we see for the next few chapters happens relatively close together as to where some of the things we saw before they they were probably spread out could have been days weeks months maybe in between some of the the things recorded but everything we see now all happened pretty closely together within this last week of Jesus's life now the first few verses we are going to look at this morning we're not going to really talk about in great detail because we will cover those Lord willing next week. And so we'll kind of get an introduction to something that's going to occur with a fig tree, and then we will move to a different topic, and then uh, that topic will be revisited by Mark in the verses we will look at next week. So uh, as we read through these these first couple of verses, uh, just kind of tuck those away uh, in your mind, and we will, we will talk about the significance of what Jesus does in those verses. But uh, we'll read through the text this morning, and then we will... Uh, Talk about it. Mark chapter 11, verse 12. The next day when they came out from Bethany, he was hungry. After seeing in the distance a fig tree with leaves, he went to find out if there was anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, because it was not the season for figs. He said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. They came to Jerusalem, and he went into the temple complex and began to throw out those buying and selling in the temple. He overturned the money changers' tables and the chairs of those selling doves and would not permit anyone to carry goods through the temple complex. Then he began to teach them, Is it not written, My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations? But you have made it a den of thieves. Then the chief priest and the scribes heard it and started looking for a way to destroy him. For they were afraid of him because the whole crowd was astonished by his teaching. And whenever evening came, they would go out of the city. Let's pray. God, we thank you for these words. And I pray, God, that we would learn something from them. God, there. Maybe some things we talk about today that are hard for us to maybe understand. But God, your word is true and your word is right. And so let us grow from what we, what we read. I pray that you just would let your Holy Spirit open our hearts and open our minds that as we look at these words that, that you would call to our minds what you need us to hear. God, maybe we're all got different things that we're struggling with or going through and maybe there's something that will be said here today. God, that you will use in our life. And so, God, I pray that you would hide me behind the cross, that you would speak through me when I open my mouth, that you would be glorified in everything that is done, dear Lord. And I pray that when we leave today, there will be something we can take out, something that we have grown in you in some way through your word. And I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, after this event with the fig tree took place, we see a passage that may cause some questions to come in our mind. We may wonder, what exactly is going on here? Now, as we talked about last week in the triumphal entry, this event is covered in four different gospel accounts. Now, 
you can read here in Mark, you can read in Luke chapter 19 into Matthew chapter 21, and you can see they all cover this event. Now, the details uh, in Mark may be a little greater than what they are in Luke and Matthew. They're, they're pretty sparse in that account. Uh, Matthew and, and Luke don't give quite as many details. But you see this same uh, uh, event talked about in all three of those what's called the synoptic gospels. And, and, and you don't see much difference in them other than a lack of details. But they all happened around the same point in time in the story. They're all right there together. You can tell that this event probably uh, followed pretty closely from the triumphal entry. Now, I say those three and I keep them separate from John because in John's account, we see a story very similar to this in John chapter 2. Now, if John's writings would, were in somewhat chronological order, then that would put the event that John speaks of toward the beginning of Jesus' ministry, as to where the event that Matthew, Mark, and Luke speak of would be at the end of Jesus' ministry. Now, I would encourage you to go back and, and read those this week and, and see some of those differences. Now, we are left with the question, is this one event that for whatever reason John chose to put at the beginning of his writings instead of at the end when it probably occurred, or is this two separate events that took place? Well, what is the event that we are talking about here? Well, Jesus and the disciples continued on their way into Jerusalem, and when they reached the temple, there were things going on in the temple that Jesus did not like. There was buying and selling that was taking place. There were money changers, tables there. People who were, uh, if you come in with one type of currency, they would exchange it for whatever was the right type of currency that would have been needed at that time in the temple complex. And so there was all this business, essentially, that was taking place. It was a marketplace. It was a money-making thing. There was a complete disrespect for God's temple. There was no worship of God going on there. There was no praying to God taking place there. It was simply a marketplace. So this is what Jesus walks into when he goes into the temple. Now, this point in time in Jerusalem would have been a super busy time because this was the time of the Passover. Now, we talk about the Passover in the Old Testament, and that's when God delivered the Israelites out of Egypt, and they, and they, and they sacrificed the, uh, the lamb, and they put the blood over their doorpost and around their door. And, and when God came through, those who had been covered by the blood of the lamb were spared. And Israel was to celebrate this Passover when God passed them over and delivered them from Israel, or excuse me, from Egypt every year. And they had been doing this for hundreds and hundreds of years now. But it was also commanded in the Old Testament that there were three times a year, three different festivals. There were several festivals that God commanded his people to, 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 to follow, uh, it, to, to celebrate certain things that were going on or to remember certain things that had occurred. And for three of these different festivals, they, uh, the people of God, the Jewish people, were to make a trip to Jerusalem. And one of the festivals in which this was required was the Passover. God's people, wherever they were in the land, if they were able to make it, they were supposed to come to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. 
they were to go to the temple. Uh, they were to go before the priest. There were supposed to be sacrifices that were going to be offered on their behalf. And so when we talk about all these people of God, all these Israelites, the Jewish people going to Jerusalem, this would have been a big deal. Now, it is estimated that there probably weren't but about 80,000 people, maybe 100,000 people living in Jerusalem at that time. But at the time of the Passover celebration, it has been suggested that there were likely over 2 million, and that's the low estimate possibly up to 4 million people who would have gathered around Jerusalem at this time. So you can imagine what that must have been like with these large crowds coming for this time of year. This was a big, important celebration. And you could say that anybody uh, who was anybody was there, uh, no matter how great you were or how small you were. If you could make it there, you were going to make it to Jerusalem for this week of the Passover. So when Jesus comes into town in this week, it's not just the normal crowd of Jerusalem. There are people everywhere. Perhaps we could think of it like uh, New Year's Eve at Times Square, right? It's a time of year where lots of people gather into New York City. Uh, maybe you could think of Mardi Gras. That's something closer to us where there are people that come from all over the world. And you see these photos and people are just crammed around and there's hollering and there's hooting and there's screaming and there's all this stuff that's going on. And that's probably the scene that Jesus walked into. You can imagine what it's like in a busy marketplace. Maybe you've been to a busy marketplace before. Maybe you've been to one of these events I just mentioned. Maybe you've seen something like the stock market where people were yelling and waving their sheets of paper like they did back in the old days and, and there was a ruckus and there was a crowd and there was all this noise and this one's trying to sell this and this one's trying to exchange this money and this one's trying to do this and all these people are coming through and people are trying to sell and people are trying to get and there's noise and there's, there's people just crammed against each other you're squeezing through, and Jesus walked into this in Jerusalem, and specifically in this story, into the temple complex. Now Jesus, when he saw what was taking place, Jesus was not happy at what had occurred. And that's what we see here in Mark chapter 11. It says in verse 15, they came to Jerusalem, and he went into the temple complex and began to throw out those buying and selling in the temple. He overturned the money changers' tables and the chairs of those selling doves. Now, this event is somewhat different from the event that John tells us in chapter 2. Now, in chapter 2, the details are slightly different. In John's version in chapter 2, it says that Jesus made a whip out of cords and began to drive people out of the temple complex. Now, we don't see that detail here. Now, if the event in John 2 and the events covered in the other three, three Gospels are the same, so be it. They may very well be the same event that cover different details and aspects of, of what took place. And for some reason, John put it earlier in his writings. That's a possibility. We can't, we can't say that that's not what occurred, but it's also possible that this happened on two separate occasions, that there were two different occasions that Jesus went into the temple complex and saw that this was taking place. Now, neither one of these views is a problem. Whether, whether different gospel writers cover different details or whether this happened twice is not really too much of an issue. 
But I wanted to point it out because if you're studying this, you will see that there are some differences and you may, you may wonder, well, I don't know the answer. I don't know to say, well, this was two separate events or this was one event. I kind of lean toward that this was two separate events. I think that this may have happened on two separate times because there's enough differences here that it sounds as though this occurred at a different time. And with John placing it so early in Jesus' ministry, that could very well be the case. Now, Jesus would have gone to Jerusalem uh, throughout his ministry for at least those three years, three Passovers he would have uh, taken part in. And so it's not unlikely that this same type of thing was going on. This was how the people of Jesus' day were, as we've seen uh, often throughout the book of Mark. They didn't really have any respect for God's word and for serving God. They really cared more about their own religious ways and what they wanted to do. So it's not hard to believe that if something would have been going on two, three years earlier that Jesus would have addressed, that it would still be going on today. Regardless of this is one event or if this is two events, the, the, the key thing that we see is Jesus' disapproval of what was taking place. Now, this story may cause us to scratch our head a little bit because almost all of the time in Scripture, we see Jesus as this, as this meek, this gentle, this humble, this compassionate man, this compassionate Savior. But yet in this instance, we see a totally different side of Jesus. And for some, that, that may make you think, well, what am I to make of this? What, are, what am I to, to understand about the way Jesus is acting here? Because look at what he did. He went in, he turned the tables over. He made a cord of whips, whether it was the same occasion or two separate occasions. The things that Jesus did were pretty violent things, really. I mean, there's no way I don't believe that you can unviolently turn a table over and make a whip of cords and begin to swing it around and run people out. I don't believe that there's any way that that can be done unviolently. And maybe I'm wrong. You may be saying, well, Jesus did it and he was not a violent guy and so it couldn't have been violent. Maybe he just gently tumped the ta table over. I don't know how Jesus did it, but in my mind, I believe that when Jesus came in there and turned the table over, it was probably a serious thing. When he took a whip uh, made out of cords and began to drive people out of the temple, it was probably a pretty intense thing for those who were there. Now that may bring the question to your mind. Well, when it says that he drove them out with a whip, did Jesus actually hit people with the whip? Well, I don't know the answer to that question. I would say no. I don't think that Jesus would have hit people with the whip, but that's something that you'll have to pray about and decide for yourself. I believe Jesus probably made the whip and began to swing it around and flung the tables over, and people probably got the picture. I do think that that may be going a little too far to say that Jesus actually, literally whipped people. But nonetheless, that language is still there that he ran them out of the temple. And so we see here a different side of Jesus that we do not see very often. We see this very serious side of Jesus where he is addressing this sinfulness that is taking place and doing so in a pretty serious manner. And so he overturned these money changers tables. These people who were selling doves in this account are in Mark's account. It lists several other types of animals. These would have probably been the animals that would have been used for the sacrifices. So the people who were coming from out of town uh, would likely, some of them would have needed to buy an animal if they weren't able to bring an animal or if their animal wasn't fit, a fit sacrifice. 
they would have had to purchase one. And this probably would have been a good money-making venture for the people who lived in Jerusalem. You got all these out-of-towners coming. You're exchanging their money for your money. And so maybe you take a little bit off the top. Uh, maybe you kind of gouge people for the prices of these, these animals that you're selling. It's possible that all of these things were taking place. Now, maybe there were some honest people there too. But regardless of whether the people in this marketplace setting were honest or not, or whether they were really sticking it to people, is irrelevant. Because regardless of, of how good their intentions may have been, Jesus said, this is not the type of thing that's supposed to take place in God's house, in God's temple. It is a complete disrespect. And not only were people selling and doing all these things, but it also says that he would not permit anyone carrying goods to, to go through the temple area. Uh, that is, some may have been just simply taking a shortcut. They weren't, they weren't worried about the temple. It was just a simple place that they passed through to get from point A to point B. It was quicker to cut through here than to go the other way around. So we're just going to cut through the temple. We're going to cut through the crowds. We don't really care about God's temple. We don't really care about praising God. We care about doing our business, making our money, making our trips shorter, getting from point A to point B. And that seems to be what the people cared about here in this passage. That, that was what was going on. And when Jesus saw this take place... He came in, and it doesn't say that he was angry, but I don't know that it would be too, too much of a stretch to say here that what Jesus is doing and the, the, the actions that are taking place, that he was angry. Now, we see that a few times in Scripture, that it says that Jesus was angry. Now, when we read this type of passage, and like what we see in John chapter 2, that may be troubling to us in a way, that we see Jesus act in such a way. Now, we have a couple of ways that we can take this event and we can look at this event. Number one is that Jesus sinned in this moment, that Jesus was angry and that his turning over the tables and making a whip and driving people out, that Jesus lost his temper and he sinned. That's one way that we could take this. Now, I'm hoping that nobody in this room takes that view because if that is the view we hold, then you might as well just get up and walk out of here right now. Because if Jesus sinned, then we are doomed. Because what makes Jesus our Savior is that he was perfect, that he was not sinful. If he was sinful in any way, then his sacrifice is not fit to cover our sins. And so therefore, if we look at this and we say, man, this at first glance looks like it was a sinful thing. Well, then we better look again because it is clear. It should be clear. If it's not clear, I want to try to clarify. Jesus did not sin. God does not sin. Jesus did not sin. We see scriptures in the New Testament where Jesus was angry. We see scriptures in the Old Testament where God was angry. Quite a few of them where God was angry with his people. So if we see God has this anger, and we see anger exhibited in Jesus' life on a very few occasions, and we know that God is not a sinner, and we know that Jesus is not a sinner, then the only other option is that what Jesus did was not sinful, but that Jesus was right in doing what he did. Now, I believe we can make this case in the New Testament, I believe we can make this case pretty clearly in one verse, and that is Ephesians chapter 4, 
verse 26, where it says, Be angry and do not sin. Now, it appears as though it's possible that we can be angry and not sin. I think this passage here is a perfect example of that. That Jesus was angry in what is taking place here. And I believe he should have been. Now, this could be referred to and, and has been by some, probably many, as a righteous anger. That Jesus was righteous and he was right to be angry in this instance. And I believe that that's probably the case here. That this was a right anger. That Jesus was right to be angry. And as harsh as those things that he did may seem, we know that they were not sinful. Now, this, this, this passage, I fear, is often misused as justification for us to act a fool. I believe that there are too many times that Christians are angry, and maybe even rightfully so, but yet they are angry and they do sin. They don't listen to what Ephesians says. They don't, instead of being angry and not sinning, they let their anger get the best of them. And then they look at a passage like this and say, but even Jesus overturned the temple, the, the tables in the temple. Well, we need to be very careful when we talk about is anger ever appropriate? Because there are probably times where it is right for us to be angry. I would venture to say there are things that if we saw and we weren't angry, that might even be a bigger issue. Now, we want to be meek and gentle and humble and compassionate because those characters are who Jesus was. The vast majority of the time, this is the example we see Jesus giving to us. But there are those few occasions in Jesus' ministry, either this one event or possibly two if it happened on two different occasions, that Jesus really was angry at what was taking place. Now, think for a moment, if you were walking down the street in a city, and you were approaching a house, and as you approached that house, you heard, you heard kids yelling and screaming and, and crying. And as you got closer to the house, you saw this house, and the windows were open, and there was someone in that house, and boy, they were, they were beating children. They were abusing children. They were harming children. What would you do? Obviously, a horrible act is occurring. There is great sinfulness that is taking place. I don't know about you, but I would probably in the instant be angry. Oh dear, there are children who are in harm's way. And so what would our reaction be if we saw something that should not be going on? Well, we can't turn a blind eye to that. I don't believe that that's what God would intend us to do. Maybe you disagree. Maybe you say, nope, we need to be compassionate and meek and gentle and say, nope, I don't need to say anything. I'm going to leave that in the Lord's hand. Or maybe you say, no, what I would do is I'd get a brick and I'd bust the window and I'd knock the door down and I would cause a scene and I would turn tables over and I would run this guy who's abusing these children out of this house. And that's an example of something that we may see, that we see that in, or we hear stories of, 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 of horrible things and and it makes us angry. And I think that sometimes that's, 
That's right. There are some things that we should see that we should not be okay with. And Jesus saw what was taking place in the temple, and he was not okay with what was taking place in the temple. And so he addressed it. That's the tough part, right? If we think about this event, and we think about God's word, and we think, okay, God, if you do come to the conclusion, and maybe you don't, but if you do come to the conclusion that you think there are times that it's right for us to be angry, how do we have a right anger without crossing the line into sin? Well, I would say that's probably very difficult. That is very difficult. Now, Jesus was perfect. He was the Son of God, and so therefore, he could be angry and not cross that line. For you and I, however, it's probably much more difficult. For you and I, when we are in the midst of the throes of anger, boy, it is hard for us not to lash out and to say things and to think things and to do things that we should not do that lead us to sin. Oftentimes, our anger is not in the moment, but our anger is long-lasting. And what I mean by that is somebody does something to you today, and you're not just angry about it today, but you are angry about it today and tomorrow and the next day, and for some people, the rest of their life. Now, in that instance, that is an anger that has led to sin because the Scripture says, Be angry and you do not sin. And then right after that, it says, Do not let the sun go down on your anger. If there are times that it's right for us to be angry, we need to be angry in the moment and not in the long term. Because when we begin to focus on and dwell on and think about our anger, it gets the best of us. And our anger turns into vengeance. And boy, we can't wait to get back at people who have done us wrong, the people who we are angry with. Now this is a tough tough thing to wrap our head around. This is, a, this is something that, boy, when you feel that you are angry about something, you need to pray really hard about that. Because you may not, you may not be right in your anger. That's a very possibil uh, good possibility. There are a lot of things that we may get angry about that we are not right to be angry about those things. There may be other things that you were angry about them, and, and we should be angry about certain things that take place. But that's going to require a lot of prayer on your part. That's going to require a lot of discernment on your part. That God would help you to know how to be angry and not sin. That's a tough thing for us to, to, to consider. And I would encourage you this week to be prayerful about this very topic. Because it is one that perhaps if you've read this passage before, you've, you've thought about and think, boy, what am I to make of this? What am I to make of Jesus acting this way? How How is this to affect me? Now some would say that it was okay for Jesus to act this way but not for us to act this way. That Jesus of course one day will judge all sin so therefore it's not wrong that he would judge these things that are taking place here and that he is the righteous judge and that he can call out things such as these but we are not and so therefore we should not follow this example of Jesus Christ. Now, I don't know what you're, where you fall on this topic that we're discussing, but that's one possibility that, that may be true. Maybe 
God does not intend for us to ever be angry. Maybe Jesus was capable of being angry and not sinning. Maybe we don't have that capability. But I believe, based on the command in Ephesians, that it must be possible to be angry and not sin. And I believe Jesus shows us that here in this passage. Now, to get their attention, he, he references some Old Testament verses. In verse 17, he talks about that it's not, uh, it is, is it not written that my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of thieves. Now, this passage, these passages that Jesus is quoting from here come from Isaiah chapter 56 and Jeremiah chapter 9. Now, I'll read for you uh, a little bit of the context of these passages. Uh, Isaiah chapter 56, verses 7 and 8 says, I will bring them to my holy mountain and let them rejoice in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be acceptable on my altar. For my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. This is the declaration of the Lord God who gathers the dispersed of Israel. I will gather to them still others besides those already gathered. Now, I wanted us to look at this passage in context because we see a phrase there that Jesus mentioned that may could be kind of passed over in, in Mark chapter 11 without us focusing on it much. And that is that God's house is to be a house of prayer for all nations. Now, if you go back and you read Isaiah 56 and you see the context and you see a little bit of it here, that he's talking about anybody who is coming in and, and, and submitting themselves to him and following God, they, they are welcome in God's house that all nations are to come together. Any who will seek God, any who will try to find God will find him. And if they follow him, they are welcome into his house. And that's why it says for all nations. And we see that spelled out for us in the full context in Isaiah chapter 56. And Jesus references this verse. And we, we, we probably tend to, 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 to kind of focus more on the my house is a house of prayer, which is true. Uh, but we don't want to forget that part about all nations, that God wants all people to come to him, that all people to worship him and all people to be saved through Jesus Christ should they choose to follow him. Jeremiah chapter 7, verses 9 through 11 is the other part that we see referenced in Mark chapter 11. Jeremiah 7, verse 9 says, Do you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, burn incense to Baal, and follow other gods that you have not known? Then do you come and stand before me in this house called by my name and say, we are delivered so we can continue doing all these detestable acts? Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your view? Yes, I too have seen it. This is the Lord's declaration. Now, when Jesus says that the temple had become a den of thieves or a house of robbers, he is referencing this passage. Now, the religious people of Jesus' day would have known this passage. And simply saying that God's house is, a, is supposed to be a house of prayer, but instead it become a den of thieves, well, that's a pretty harsh saying. But when you go back and look at 
the, the, the full context of these passages, this would have been a really harsh thing. Because what Jeremiah is addressing is people who are claiming to be God's people, but yet they are not living for God. They are worshiping idols. They are living in a sinful way. And they think they can just continue to live their sinful lifestyle, continue to worship false gods, and then come before God's temple and say, Oh yes, God will deliver us. We come before God because God is good. That's the context of what's taking place in Jeremiah chapter 7, verses 9 through 11. These people who are worshiping false gods, living in a sinful way, and then almost mockingly they come before God in God's house. But what does God tell them? He says, Has this house which is called by my name become a den of robbers in your view? And so when Jesus references this passage, he is, he is bringing some pretty pretty heavy uh, uh, condemnation down on the people that are doing this. He's, he's pointing out to them what is taking place and what they are doing. And obviously, it got their attention. You can understand uh, the reaction that the people there probably had, uh, especially the religious people. And we see that reaction here in the next few verses, in verse 18. Then the chief priest and the scribes heard it and started looking for a way to destroy him. For they were afraid of him because the whole crowd was astonished by his teaching. Now, the response of the chief priests and scribes, we talked about this a little bit last week when we talked about the triumphal entry. Uh, there were some of the accounts of that talked about the Pharisees when Jesus was coming into town. The Pharisees told Jesus, look, shut these people up. And they wanted to get rid of Jesus. They said they were looking for a way to destroy him. And in this event uh, that occurred not long after that, we see a similar response. Now, the religious leaders of Jesus' day, for the most part, don't appear to be very godly people. And we see that quite frequently in, in these gospel accounts of the scribes and the Pharisees uh, and, and all of these Sadducees and other people who are very religious but they don't at all appear to be very godly. They had a lot of things that they called people to do that God did not call people to do. They had a lot of, uh, a, a lot of requirements that they put much more emphasis on than God did. And their heart was not on the Lord. It appears as though, to my understanding, that their heart was really on being in power, that they were the religious leaders, that they were the ones who knew better, that they were the ones who were holier than thou. Well, when Jesus comes onto the scene, he really shakes up this, 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 this good gig that they've got going on, these who are in uh, leadership roles, these chief priests and these scribes. And the advantage they had is that the people looked up to them before Jesus came because before Jesus, these people in religious positions of power were those who were holy. But as Jesus comes onto the scene, the people begin to leave them and begin to follow Jesus. They're losing their crowd. They're losing their following. They're losing their power. Things that they had been okay with for years and had let slide, all the selling in the temple complex, Jesus comes onto the scene and he says, No, stop. This is wrong. This is a place where you are to come and praise God and pray to God and worship God. But you are only worried about making a little bit of money. God's house means nothing to you. 
And when Jesus comes in and says, you are wrong, they didn't want to hear that. We don't like to hear that either, do we? We don't like to hear uh, that we are wrong, although we, we need to realize that there are times that we are wrong. I was uh, watching a show last night. Uh, I like it. It's about a guy. He goes into these restaurants and cafes that are failing, and he, he looks at what's going on. He's a pro, you know, big-time chef, and he says, look, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to show you what to do to fix this. And, and on the episode last night, there was a waitress there, and there was a guy waiting to check out, and he was standing right beside her, and she never looked up at him, and she just walked off, never said anything to him. And this chef, he called her out and said, you can't do that. You, you can't walk off and leave somebody. You were wrong. You did a bad job. And her first response was, well, Nobody's perfect. Everybody messes up. And that's a very defensive response, right? When somebody tells us that we have done something wrong, that's, a, that's almost an instant go-to. You hear that a lot. People say, well, nobody's perfect. You're not perfect. Who are you to judge me? And you say you're a Christian. Well, that's a defensive response. And when we give that type of response, what we are really saying is, I don't even want to think about the fact that I've done wrong. I don't want to deal with the fact that I've done wrong. I don't want to acknowledge that I have done wrong. I just want you to go away, and I want everything you're saying to go away, and I don't want to hear it anymore. And so when somebody comes to us, and we are probably all guilty of this too, and somebody calls us out for a wrong that we have done, we probably don't like to hear it. And maybe we have even been guilty of responding. Well, you're not perfect. Well, who are you to judge? And people think when they say that, that's the ultimate rebuttal. There's nothing that can come against that. Well, it's pretty obvious that we're all not perfect. But that doesn't mean that when we do wrong sometimes, that maybe we don't need to be told that we are doing wrong. Now, I say that cautiously. We need to be very careful when we are involved in such decisions as to addressing wrongs that are being done. But sometimes they have to be addressed, and Jesus addressed them on regular occasions, this being one of them, not all quite this intense, but he did address those who were doing wrong on multiple occasions. And there are times, and God's word calls us to this, that we must address wrongs that are going on as well. Jesus addressed a wrong that was going on with this group, and sometimes wrongs are addressed with us, sometimes by other brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, our natural inclination may be, who are you to tell me? Who are you to judge me? Well, when we're tempted to have that thought and to be angry and defensive, I know this is difficult, but I would encourage you to pray that God would help you to listen to what people are saying to you. Because there may be things that people who genuinely love you and they are not trying to be judgmental, they are not trying to act like they're holier than thou, they simply see something wrong that you're doing and know that it's going to be a problem and a bigger problem down the road and they simply are trying to address it for your good. And I would encourage you to pray that if somebody says something like that, then you listen to what they say. And you pray about it and say, God, is what, they, is what they said true? Now, you may pray about it and you may study the scriptures and you may say, what they said is not true. I was not wrong in what I did or what I said or the way I was acting. That's not, what, what they're accusing me of is not true. 
Or you may pray about it and study the scripture and you may say, now get ready, you may say, they were right and I was in the wrong. Now that's a good thing. That's a hard thing. That's tough. But boy, that's a good thing. When we, when we feel that conviction from another brother and sister in Christ or even from God's word, and we say, you know what? I was wrong. And so we got to pray about that and ask God to help us with that because that's, that, 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 that looking at what people say and what God's word says, it may not come natural. We may, we may be made aware of things that we have done that are wrong, and our first response may be one of a defensive response. Somebody tells us something that we've done wrong and we don't want to hear it, guess what? We just don't talk to that person anymore. We don't talk to them. And even worse, we may even talk about them. Can you believe that so-and-so told me that I was wrong and they claimed to be a Christian? But what if what somebody calls out to us is right? What if we are wrong? And not just with people that we see, but do we ever do that with God's Word? Do we ever read through God's Word? Do we ever feel the Holy Spirit convicting us of something that we know is wrong and we don't want to hear it, so we just shut God's Word? I don't want to hear what you're saying, Jesus. It's hard. I don't want to forgive people, Jesus, who have done me wrong. It's hard. I don't want to love my enemies, Jesus. It's hard. God, I want to keep living in this sin that I know is wrong, and your word says it's not, so I'm going to try to twist your word around. And if I can't twist your word around to, 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 to convince myself that it's right and justify my sinful actions, then I don't want to hear your word. I'm going to stop reading it. I'm not going to go to church as often. I'm going to quit listening to that preacher on the TV that I used to listen to because he said something, and it convicted me that I was wrong. And we get this defensive mindset. Well, that's what happened here with Jesus and these people. This had been building up for years. He had been calling out these religious leaders, these scribes and these Pharisees and these Sadducees. And he had pointed out to them on multiple occasions that what they were doing was not of God, that they were not living for God, but they were living for themselves, that they were wrong and it was unacceptable. And he would quote scriptures that, would, that they would probably hear and they would cringe, how dare Jesus say this? about us. But what I don't believe they did was ever stop for a second and say, is he right? Is he right? Are we those people that, that, that were talked about in the Old Testament? Are we doing this thing and living this way that we shouldn't be living? Is, is Jesus right? I don't believe for most of them they ever stopped for a second to think about what Jesus said. They heard what Jesus said, and he was not saying that to try to condemn them and make them feel horrible. He was quoting God's word. He was telling them the truth because he wanted them to repent and follow him and be saved. Jesus didn't come into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world. But the only way that they could know what they were doing was wrong is for him to tell them, this is not right. This is unacceptable. You are to be worshiping God in this place. You are to be praying to God, but you don't care about God. Your life is a lie. 
You just care about making some money. It's a good time to make money. All the people are going to be here. We're going to make some money. And Jesus said, and you're wrong. Wouldn't it have been great if they would have said, you know what, Jesus, you're right. Forgive me. We are wrong. If the religious leaders would have stood up and said, look, everybody, get out of here. And don't come back. We're not going to stand for it next year or the next year or the next year. But if this occurred two different occasions in John and here again in Mark at the beginning of Jesus' ministry and at the end, well, guess what? They didn't get it. If it happened two, three years earlier, they didn't get it. Because they didn't listen to Jesus. When we read God's Word, we need to listen to God's words. We need to listen to what Jesus says. Not just to the people then, but to us today. And sometimes what Jesus said cuts to our core because it's truth and we know it's truth. But the question is, what are we going to do with that truth? Now, when the people of Jesus' day heard this, the chief priests and the scribes, when they heard it, they didn't say, well, what if we are wrong? They said, nope, this guy's telling us we're wrong. We got to destroy him. And it says in verse 18 that they started looking far away to destroy him. For they were afraid of him. Isn't that something? They were afraid of him. Now the Bible says that fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. But they weren't afraid of him and fearful of him because he was the Son of God, the Savior of the world, who would one day judge their sins. They were afraid of him because they were afraid that if the people stopped following them and followed Jesus, they would lose their power. But we can't have that. We can't have this guy, this carpenter, this Jesus. We can't have him coming in here in our city telling us that we are sinful people, that we are wrong, and taking our followers away from us. We can't have that. And so they begin to look for a way that they could destroy him. Now we saw that last week in the triumphal entry and we see this, we see this tension building. It's been building for three years now. And it is building to a head at this point. And that's why it won't be many days from this event that those who are seeking to destroy Jesus will succeed or at least appear to have succeeded in their minds think they have succeeded. Now, when we look at this passage today and we see the actions of Jesus, well, that's going to require a lot of prayer on your part and discernment on what your views of anger are and how you feel that you need to deal with anger and if you ever feel that there are times that anger is appropriate. You'll have to let the Holy Spirit lead you in that way. But I think that when we look at this passage and we see what was going on in the temple complex and among these people that, that claimed, they would have claimed probably most of them to have been God's people. When we look and see that even though they claimed it, their life was not being lived in a way 
that showed that they loved the Lord. Their life was being lived in a way that showed that they loved the ways of the world. And Jesus came in and Jesus said, this is not right. This is not how you're supposed to be living. This is not what it's supposed to look like when God's people are gathered by the millions. Can you imagine if there were four million people in Jerusalem and they would have come to have worshipped the Lord? Can you imagine what a beautiful thing it would have been around the temple complex? Can you imagine how beautiful that would have been for four million people to be praying to God, to be praising God, to be worshiping God at His temple. What a beautiful thing that would have been. But when Jesus got there, He found chaos. Instead of God's people living for God, He found God's people living for themselves. Now, there's some application here, I think, for, for churches, for groups of Christians that come together in, in one body or one building. There's some application here for us that we want to respect God's house, that when we are at God's house, we want to be respectful in our actions and the things that we do. And we don't ever want our church to be something that, that, that we use as a, as a showpiece or a way to make money for ourselves, or a way to make ourselves look better. We want to be careful of those things. Now, I don't mean that, that, that you know, here in this passage there were people who were selling things. I don't believe that this in any way means that we should never sell anything on church property, for instance. I remember when we were kids and we were raising money for camp, we sold candy bars. Now, I don't believe that was sinful. I don't believe there was anything sinful about us selling candy bars on Sunday mornings in a church service because what we were doing was for the glory of God. We weren't trying to make money for ourselves in that type of way, and it's not a type of thing where, yeah, you can sell a candy bar, that's bad, but don't sell a Twix because then you're twice as fit for hell because there's two in there. You know, that's not the type of thing that Jesus, I don't think, was talking about. It wasn't necessarily that there was that there was selling going on. I mean, that was a problem. That shouldn't have been that way. But I don't. I think we go too far if we were to bring that application into everything that we do at church because there are many good things that churches do, whether it's making chicken dinner plates and people coming to the church and buy them and the money being used to help people who are in need. There are a lot of good things that churches do where there's stuff that's sold on church grounds. And I don't believe that that's the type of thing that we need to worry about. But we do need to be careful when we come together as Christians, that we are respectful of God in God's house. And that everything we do, we do it for the glory of God. And that was not what was taking place here. Now, I think there's some application in that way for us in this passage. But I think there may be greater application for us in our own personal life. If we say we are followers of God, if we say we are Christians, if we say... We want to live by God's word, but yet we are living in a way that's contrary to God's word, that perhaps we need to begin to look at God's word a little deeper. Perhaps there are things that God's word is convicting or has convicted you of, things that the Holy Spirit has convicted you of. 
And maybe you need to listen to those things. We may want to be defensive. We may want to deny. We may want to shut God's word off. And if we do that, we are no different than the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees that we see continually in God's word. They heard it and they ignored it. And we do not want to be those who hear God's word and ignore it. We want to be those who hear God's word, and as hard as it sometimes is, and it is, we want to say, God, you are right, and repent. Now, there are hard things in God's word, but there's a lot of good in God's word. There's a lot of good encouragement. There's beautiful things that Jesus does, and there's encouraging things that we see in God's word. And we want to think about those things and focus on those things and live by those things. But there are other parts of God's word that we cannot ignore. This instance with Jesus in the temple. The verses that speak harshly about things and against things that we may be doing. We can't ignore those. It all works together. We are encouraged when we need to be encouraged by God's word. And we are corrected when we need to be corrected by God's word. And this is a good example in this story of Jesus trying to bring about correction and life change in a people who do not want it. Now, some of them did, praise the Lord. There were plenty of people there in Jesus' day that did follow him. But there were some that didn't. And when we read God's word, when I preach God's word, when you read it on your own, God wants his word to change your life for the better. He wants you to realize you're a sinner in need of a Savior, and Jesus is that Savior. He wants you to find encouragement on the days where you struggle. And he wants to use it to correct you on the days where you need to be corrected. Jesus was trying to bring about change for the good. God's word is trying to bring about change for the good in our lives. But it's up to us to decide whether we're going to listen to it or reject it. Let's pray. God, we come to you this morning. We thank you for this passage. This is a tough passage. And help us when we talk about anger to, to know what to do, dear Lord. This is so hard. God, we, we want to follow the example of Jesus. He is our perfect example. But God, help us not to ever justify our anger when we are, when we are sinning in a way that we shouldn't sin. God, when we are allowing our anger to cause sin in our life. So God, I pray that you give us discernment to know if we should ever be angry, and if so, when and, and how we should be angry, dear Lord. And God, as we look at these words of Jesus, God, we see an instance or two in his ministry where he, he was pretty harsh. And God, maybe that's a good example for us that, God, Jesus didn't go around on a warpath all the time. If there are times, God, that we are to be angry, they are to be few and far between. But God, I pray that you help us to know what to do and to make heads and tails of, of that. God, I pray that you help us to hear your word and listen to it. God, maybe we are guilty of being like the the people at the temple. Maybe we say we're yours and maybe we go through the motions, but God, maybe our heart is not in it. And so God, I pray that if we are yours and our heart is not in it, that it would get in it. And God, if there are some here today or some listening online, God, that are not yours. God, I pray that they would hear your word. God, that if they are convicted of sin, that they would be encouraged by your forgiveness that comes when we repent of that sin. And praise the Lord for us, God. You don't just...
point out things that are sinful and, and leave us there to, 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 to waller in our sin. But God, you tell us what's sinful and you tell us how to be forgiven through Jesus Christ. And so God, I pray that that truth is, is, is made known to everybody that's, that's here today or listening online. And God, I pray that you'd be glorified from the reading of these words. And I pray that your Holy Spirit would tuck them away in our heart, that we would dwell on them and remember them in the days that we need to remember them. And I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for joining us for today's service. To learn more about Jesus, call or text Pastor Shan at 601-657-0180 or email him at shanvnme.com. You can also visit us at www.enterprisebaptist.church or follow us on Facebook at facebook.com slash ebcliberty. We hope that you have been blessed by today's service.